is the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. And hello to you, Jessica Hayes, with you again today. So great to be catching up with you this afternoon. Today you're headed to the Canningvale Markets, where wholesalers reckon there's a tighter-than-usual supply of fresh fruit and vegetables in WA, and it's leading to some healthy prices for growers. The realisation is that you don't have to plant everything all the time, particularly if you can't get it picked and packed, that'll only lead to increased waste. You'll hear more from Rod McPherson at Market West very soon. And as Australian officials gear up to meet with their Chinese counterparts for the first time since 2019, some industries are cautiously optimistic about what it might mean for their sector, including Australian wine producers. I don't think we can solve any problems if we're not talking. So dialogue is terrific. It's great that we're having uh, meetings at the ministerial level, at the prime minister's level as well. And we hope that that certainly leads to a, a situation in which our relationship can be become normal again. More on that soon. And I'll also be catching up with Richard McGregor from the Lowy Institute to find out if and when you, the producer might start to see some markets normalise as diplomatic ties start to defrost. First up, though, I'd like to know if you reckon the livestock industry is being unfairly targeted for having a detrimental effect on our health and the environment. The text number is 0448922604. There are lots of different aspects to this, and I do really want to hear your thoughts this afternoon. The text number again, 0448922604. And the reason I ask is because Dr. Graham Gardner is a livestock measurement technologies expert at Murdoch University. Now, he was a keynote speaker at a Meaty Matters conference held in Perth recently to discuss the role of meat in global society. Dr Gardner says methane emissions from livestock are not as big a problem as carbon dioxide from fossil fuels. Look, all agriculture generates emissions. So that's one thing to say straight up. Um, methane has, uh, or, or you know, ruminants particularly, have their role to play within it. It's been overstated. So here's a, here's a few interesting numbers for you. Back in the day, before the domestication of ruminants, um, there were a hell of a lot of them still roaming the earth. And in fact, they estimate those numbers to have been 0.86 or 86% of what we've currently got. So it's not like the modern production animal industries have suddenly tripled or quadrupled the number of ruminants that were out there generating mass global warming. It hasn't happened like that. We've effectively got the same numbers that have always been there contributing to this this constantly present bubble of gases, methane, that is part of a, a carbon cycle. So it gets generated and then it gets re-sequestered by the grass that those animals are eating and then it gets regenerated. And the crucial thing about this is that it's a short-lived gas. So the, the half-life of methane is about five years, whereas carbon dioxide from fossil fuels is 100 years. So in effect, if you were to compare the two, you're basically emitting methane, which is part of this cycle. It's, um, it's being generated but turning over quickly. And so, in effect, it's this kind of like this bubble that's existed in the atmosphere um, for as long as we've been around. Whereas the, the digging up of fossil fuels and the, and the constant emissions from that, it's contributing to a bubble that is continuously growing. 
Let's go beyond methane because some people still feel as though livestock farming is detrimental to the environment beyond just the gases that are coming out in the burps. What are your thoughts on, on those side of things, the damage to the land and the clearing of land, etc.? That's a really good point. So there are several things to consider that go well beyond just the gases that are emitted. Um, you may have heard of the, um, the effectively ruminants and livestock competing for land that you could otherwise grow crops on. Whereas in actual fact, if you actually look at it worldwide, 75% of, um, of agricultural production occurs on constant grasslands, so lands that you otherwise could not grow crops on. It's non-arable. So for a start, you can't just simply turn around and, and suddenly grow crops everywhere where you've got ruminants. I don't know, I'll give you, a, the, you know, the most extreme example. There's cattle in the Pilbara. You're not going to go up into the Pilbara and grow the equivalent amount of protein through a, um, through a legume-type crop. So that's, uh, that's one of the key issues. Another key constraint here, of course, is that to replace that protein, you've got to go to the, the grains, the pulses, and they're quite restricted in where you can actually grow those. And this is one of the key things. If you go and say, well, let's reduce the amount of livestock that are out there, you're actually reducing the amount of protein that is out there. So you've got to be very careful with that. People will starve if you do that without replacing it. And yet, where you can actually grow these pulse crops is limited, and so therefore it's not an easy transition to make. So when you're talking about growing pulses, that's replacing the protein that you would get from the meat if you chose not to eat meat for health reasons. That's exactly right. You're saying you're going to have to get it from somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's exactly right. And there's, a, there's another thing to consider. So from these crops, um, for I think it's estimated that about one kilogram of grain generates an additional four kilograms of inedible material. Now, guess what you do with that? You feed it to ruminants, and they are spectacular at taking that and turning it into high-quality protein, which you otherwise would not have. And if you weren't doing that, you're actually creating waste that then would need to be dealt with itself. So that, of course, would have an environmental impact. So there's swings and roundabouts here. It's not, a, it's not as simple as just removing ruminants from the system. won't fix it. So another reason why some of the younger generation are tending to turn away from livestock and eating meat is for those health reasons. Either they keep hearing that it's bad for their cholesterol or their fat, they may also have other reasons. They don't like the thought of having livestock in paddocks or in trucks or on ships or in abattoirs. So that's a, that's a slightly different matter. If it's health-wise, though, are there some myths associated with that? Are, are, is meat, red meat, uh, detrimental to our health? Well, the, at this conference, um, there was an entire section on health. Um, it, it started with a bloke by the name of Neil Mann. He went through just the simple evolution of the, the human race, which historically has consumed um, animal-based proteins as part of their diet. I think about 65% um, have come from animal-based proteins and 35% of their diet comes from non-animal sourced foods. So that's what we've evolved with over you know, the last three and a half million years. So our teeth, our gut, our entire metabolism is structured around dealing with that and coping with it and, and thriving upon that type of intake. 
So that's the uh, that, that's where we've come from. The other um, the other key thing that was explored. So a, a lady by the name of Alice Stanton. She spoke. She's quite a good nutritionist, um, and she spoke about populations where they consume less than thirty percent of their caloric intake or, or what they eat from animal based proteins. Now those populations where that happens, they end up with deficiencies. So this is things like iron and zinc, um, folate, vitamin A, vitamin B12, calcium. So all of those things, they're highly available through animal proteins and those populations not consuming them end up deficient. And the second you're deficient, you either have to take supplements or try and source those animal-based proteins to replace them. Now, if you actually go and compare, and this, this is really interesting, actually, if you go to, go to the alternative foodstuffs and look at the amount you would otherwise have to eat from grains, so those, um, those pulses that I was talking about, you have to eat about five times as much of those to extract the same amount of those minerals I just mentioned compared to a single dose of, um, of protein. So it's basically a one to five ratio. So imagine having to eat five times as much just to extract those minerals. And I suppose not everyone in the world has the ability the, or the finances to be able to actually access everything they need if you're not getting it from meat. And this is another crucial thing. You know, it's okay for the, 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 the sort of the kids in the western suburbs to say, well, I'm going to go and be a vegan and, uh, and I'll, uh, I'll get good nutritional advice and I'll go and consume supplements, and that'll make sure I don't become deficient, maybe even get an injection of iron to stay ahead of it, particularly for women. This is the western suburbs of Perth, of Perth by the way, yeah. just in case you're listening to this in, <laughs> in, in the, the eastern states. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, you're, uh, the, the bulk of the world's population, they have access to neither that information nor those mineral supplements. If you were to ex- remove animal proteins from it, you would have a, a global health issue on your hands. Just chatting to Dr Graham Gardner, who's a livestock measurement technologies expert at Murdoch Uni. I suppose livestock can be very, very important for some family businesses, but in some countries they're even more important than that, aren't they? Yeah, this is crucial. So in Africa, the, um, the ruminant population of the world, about 20% of it, is based there. And they, for, um, for many of those populations, they represent like a bank. So, so their wealth is stored in the animals that they own. And of course, prestige is tied up around that. Um, so you've got both that nutritional overlay, the, um, the readily available minerals and amino acids from what they're eating, but also you've got the economic and societal overlay. And that's crucial. That's not going to be an easy thing to fix in Africa. Um, I think they, they do need help. So, you know, the, that 20% of the ruminant population tend to be poorly productive and high methane emitters. So um, that's certainly, in terms of global attention, that's an area that, um, that could do with a bit of help. The other thing to look at is the, the, the worldwide availability of energy and protein. Now, as a, just a, a total body of food that is out there, um, the estimates are that we still have plenty of energy available for the existing population, albeit I, I will concede it's not equitably distributed and that needs to be fixed, but the, uh, the energy is there. Protein, alternatively, is 
more on a nice edge. So at the moment, it looks like we've just got enough protein for meeting the, the human population's requirements across the world. If we were to suddenly remove animal-based proteins from that, you've got a huge issue on your hands. So for a start, we can't grow enough of these um, pulse grains to, to replace that protein. The humans would have to eat five times as much of them and you would then be dealing with having to redistribute those um, into, into areas of the world where it's hard to get them to. Whereas, you know, your ruminants, they can be owned by, um, by farmers in third world countries. They can eat and, and sustain themselves on, on very poor um, feedstuffs um, that are largely inedible to humans. And, um, and you know, they, they effectively are a key part of feeding those populations of the world. So just going back to where we started with the methane emission side of things, if you were advising politicians in Australia and throughout the world as to what to do to try to help the environment to decrease our methane emissions, given everything you've just mentioned there, what would your advice be? So in Australia, um, you know, we've got the, the technologies to act upon the emissions on several fronts. So there was actually a, a couple of good presentations by, uh, by Phil Verco and Manny Curnow, and they, they were talking about the, the animal itself and the ability to feed it substances like seaweeds. Mm -hmm. The asparagopsis would, argument. Yeah, the yep. asparagopsis story that would reduce the amount of carbon coming out, the amount of methane, um, but also to select for animals that emit less. So, uh, so that's the emission part of the story. Now, the other... The other part of the story that's often overlooked, so you've got to look at the amount of carbon produced per product generated. Now, if we were to talk about the grams of protein produced per carbon emitted, you can actually significantly shift that balance as well by selecting for fast-growing lean animals so long as you don't wreck their eating quality. So in Australia, we can actually, we, we've got the, the measurement technologies available to us now that can measure and quantify that in excellent detail, in fact, far better than anywhere in the world. It's an absolute strength of our, um, of our livestock industries. So, uh, so this is, a, in my opinion, this is a key thing that we should get ahead of if we can properly benchmark the amount of protein that we are generating from these animals, trade on that value and maintain its eating quality, then the market can respond. And we've got, this is the crucial one, documented evidence to prove to governments and international auditing bodies that our, our emissions claims per kilogram of protein are accurate. If that catches on worldwide, we could be at the forefront of all this. So it's been a fascinating discussion with you, and I'd, I'd love to keep going, but we have run out of time. Dr. Graham Gardner, thanks for your time on the Country Hour. Thanks very much, Richard. Dr. Graham Gardner, who is a professor in biochemistry, nutrition and toxicology in the College of Environmental and Life Sciences at Murdoch University. He was speaking to Richard Hudson. Uh, Dr. Gardner has been a keynote speaker and a researcher for a number of recent conferences around the world, including last week's Meaty Matters Forum held in Perth, which discussed the role of meat in society. What did you make of Dr. Gardner's comments? You can let me know on the text. The number is 0448 922 604. Do you think he's getting it right? 
instead of getting angry feelings uh, as though society is pointing the finger at the livestock industry for doing the wrong thing for the environment. Uh, Dr Gardner is suggesting uh, that farmers and other industry reps could hop on the front foot a bit more and use technology to market WA as sustainably produced meat. Hayden has texted in. He says, yes, what a great story. Well done. Uh, you too can have your say. The number is zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. And again, if you're texting in this afternoon, just remember to pop your name on that text and let us know where you're from. 21 past 12. Now, wholesalers at WA's only wholesale fruit and vegetable market in Canningvale, Perth, say supply of fresh produce is down by about 20% compared to last year. Farmers are picking less due to ongoing labour shortages, which means they aren't sending the same volumes to the markets. And it comes at a time when flooding on the East Coast has also impacted the national supply of fresh goods. Rod McPherson is the CEO of Market West, which operates the Canningvale markets in Perth, and he reckons a tighter supply is driving prices higher at the farm gate. Supply is limited. Uh, I think the growers, we've seen the growers restrict their production, mostly because of the labour availability. So that means that what is being sold, the prices are holding up. It's the simple supply and demand. There's good stock availability, but you know it is at a higher price because of the input cost to the to the growers. And supply, by how much would you say it actually is down? It may be 20% down. Mm. And is it just because of the labour issues? Mostly because of the availability of labour. Are there any? Is there any other factors that might be contributing? Oh, I, I think growers are certainly conscious of the of the costs of production. We all know that fuel is uh, high um, and then the cost of the fertilisers, nutrients and uh, chemicals and pesticides uh, have also increased quite a bit. So I think they're managing their cost structures maybe a, a bit more closely. And with a smaller supply this year, what does that mean for consumers, especially around Christmas time? There's still plenty of stock available. What we're seeing is that there's not... There's no oversupply, so there's still plenty of stock available, quality's good, and what we're seeing is that the um, prices are holding up. As a consumer, it may affect your purchasing decision, and you might look for an alternative, a cheaper alternative than something you may have purchased uh, beforehand. Probably the, the trend is just less, not the same levels of activity, but we think in the, in the next week that will ramp up. And what does that mean for growers and wholesalers to have less demand? Well, I, I think the demand is there for what is being supplied. If there's less supply, the, the demand is still strong, but it keeps the prices up. Bearing in mind there's also been some significant weather events on the East Coast, so some produce has headed that way as well. Now, that wouldn't come through the central markets here. That might head straight to the East Coast from the growers and then... Also, there may be some effect of the growers in the eastern states couldn't produce because their crops have been washed away or severely damaged. So that uh, any imported produce from the east coast would also be affected. What's the quality looking like, even though supply is a bit down? Oh, I think if you have a look around, you'll see good quality, good colour and also um, yeah, a reasonably plentiful supply. 
So there's plenty of choices for the consumer. How unusual is what we're seeing right now? I think this is a culmination of things. You know, this is on the back of, of uh, COVID and particularly the, the, the um, labour shortage, I'm sure, will ease over time, particularly as the backpackers are allowed or are prepared to come back in uh, to Australia. And certainly we've seen the costs of labour increase as a result of that shortage. Economics would tell you whenever there's a shortage, the prices will go up. So, and that's what we're experiencing here now. And when we talk about labour, who are we talking about? Are we talking about pickers, packers, sellers? Yeah, we're generally talking about pickers and packers on, on farm and, you know, that's what's needed. Particularly now it's, it's stone fruit season. Those farmers, would, well, we know are experiencing some labour shortages. and So it, it tends to be seasonal depending on the product. What do you think growers are going to do next year to counteract the labour shortages? Well, I don't know. There's a lot that growers can do. I think they're, they're certainly the government and uh, other employer organisations are certainly working to try and free up the labour market. That's going to take a little time, but yeah, it's a, it will be about availability for the growers. I mean, they'll take what they can, but then I, I think they've realised that as a significant input cost, managing the cost of that labour is a constant battle. Do you think they will grow less to compensate and then reduce supply even more? Uh, I, I think that what we're seeing now is they're growing less. That's to do with the labour. So I think they've got to have a crystal ball to try and see what the labour market's going to be and then plant accordingly. And I think there may be some modification of that where, where the realisation is that you don't have to plant everything all the time, particularly if you can't get it picked and packed, that'll only lead to increased waste. So uh, it's important that they try and anticipate the movement in the labour market to see what availability is going to be like and uh, plan their crops accordingly. Is this the case for other markets as well? Oh, I believe on the East Coast it's been the same, yeah. So, And of course on top of that they've had the, the weather events up and down the East Coast and that's certainly affected the growing capabilities. CEO of Market West, Rod McPherson, speaking with Sophie Johnson. And as you heard from Rod, fresh produce supplied down by about 20%, uh, according to his estimates. And that's because growers are obviously managing those higher input costs and still grappling away with that tight labour supply, which is really impacting output. If you're out picking today, I would love to hear from you. Have you changed your plantings or are you cutting back on picking let me know on the text. The number is zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. That number again is zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. And if you'd like to read Sophie's story, you can find it online. Just search ABC Rural Market and West. You're listening to the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. Yes, 27 past 12. Soon you're headed to the newsroom. But before you head there, uh, in some news that's come in today, former New South Wales Resources Minister Ian MacDonald has been found guilty of two counts of willful misconduct for his decision to grant a mining licence to a company run by former union boss John Maitland. Mr Maitland has been found guilty of being an accessory to the offences and the judge concluded the driving force behind Ian McDonald's decision to grant an exploration licence to Doyles Creek Mining in 2008 was to benefit Mr Maitland and his company. And Ian McDonald is already 
behind bars, having been convicted in a separate matter concerning a coal licence in Bylong Valley in New South Wales. Interesting stuff. Now, just on the topic of the role of red meat and what it does, uh, the role it plays, I guess, in our society, uh, a few texts are coming in. Debbie has texted in. She says, how refreshing to hear Dr Gardner giving us a positive perspective on the crucial role red meat plays in human health and the fact that it's nowhere near as bad for the environment as some people have us believe. That text in from Debbie. Chris from Condinen has texted and he says, wow, so informative. What a revelation to hear the flip side of the argument, especially on the ABC. A bit rough, Chris. Thank you for that text. Uh, and this text come in from Ben, who says, Dr. Graham Gardner, good discussion. And he did not mention the elephant in the room, the fact that most legumes have herbivory, I hope I pronounced that right, defence, secondary metabolites that restrict the ability of our guts to absorb the nutrients among lots of other less optimal uh, effects that no one wants to talk about. You too can have your say. Send me a text. The number is 0448 922604. Half past 12 on ABC Radio. Uh, just a moment, you headed off to the Bureau to get the latest in weather. Then I'll be joined by Richard Hudson with rainfall and bushfire information. But first, it's time to get an update from the newsroom. And Andrea Mays joins me uh, in the studio. Good afternoon, Andrea. What's making the headlines today? Good afternoon. WA's first big battery project has been delayed and won't be switched on until after summer. Once, op- once operational, the battery will be able to power 160,000 homes for two hours. The battery's power will be stored when demand is low and put back into the grid during peak times. The pilot in last Friday's fatal plane crash on the Nullarbor has been identified as 43-year-old Perth father of two, Michael Hebbard. Mr Hebbard was the sole occupant on board when he crashed an amateur to built Jabiru recreational plane at Kaguna, about 350 kilometres west of the South Australian border. And Perth's Casey Delacqua says she expects next week's United Cup mixed tournament to be a huge hit with local fans. The 18-team event will be held across three cities, including Perth, starting on December the 29th. More news, Jess, at one. Thank you so much for that update from the newsroom. Andrea Mays there. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. And it's time to head to the Bureau now to find out what you can expect from the skies for the next few days. Carolyn Crow is today's duty forecaster. Uh, Carolyn, good afternoon to you. Um, let's kick things off in the north today because, as you'd expect at this time of year, it looks like there's been some nice falls in the north, particularly around Columbaroo and also near Kununurra. What's the situation Yeah, uh, it has been quite active uh, through northern parts of the state and that's going to continue for the next few days as well. So starting off to today, there's a trough that's extending from the Kimberley through into the Pilbara and into the Gascoyne and even down the west coast there. And on that trough, we've got got our showers and thunderstorms continuing through the Kimberley uh, and into the interior and then on the trough through the Pilbara into the Gascoyne, uh, northern parts of the goldfields and sort of even those western parts of the south interior as well. Uh, They could be pretty gusty thunderstorms, particularly through the Gascoigne area uh, today. And then coming into the next couple of days, so the activities 
going to continue to increase on the trough. So through those Pilbara areas in the Gascoyne and the North Interior uh, through the outlook period, but particularly through the Kimberley, uh, the monsoon trough and uh, is north off the off the top end and. Um, a low may form in that trough and it's going to drag uh, the trough, the low is going to move south and drag the monsoon trough south as well and we'll start seeing an increase in uh, the rainfall activity uh, through the top end and the northern parts of the Kimberley in the coming day. So it will be a little bit more enhanced than just our uh, diurnal um, thunderstorms through that area there and accumulative totals, uh, particularly through sort of the northeastern parts um, near the coast of the Kimberley, we could see a couple of hundred millimetres accumulative over the three to four day period there and then adjacent parts will gradually sort of uh, decrease a little bit but sort of could still see sort of the 50 millimetre mark if not a little bit more in those eastern parts of the Kimberley as well. So it's going to get quite active uh, definitely over the next couple of days. So watch that area there uh, and we'll be also uh, potentially looking at the flood uh, watches and warnings over um, today and the next couple of days as well uh, with the amount of rain for that we're expecting through that area. Okay, now yesterday we were talking about that cyclone off the Cocos Keeling Islands. Has there been much of a change there? Uh, So that uh, severe tropical cyclone Darien... Yes. So sitting about 420 kilometres to the west of Cocos Island. So it's quite far off the coast now. There's no watches or warnings for Cocos Island uh, anymore. So that was uh, removed uh, from the Cocos Islands yesterday. Um, The... Severe TC Darien, uh, so it's a Category 3 cyclone. It's kind of gradually just moving south and then overnight tonight and into tomorrow we should start seeing a westerly shift uh, of the cyclone. So continuing, then we'll then move west and gradually out of our region sort of uh, around Thursday or Friday. Uh, Still looking as though it's going to maintain that intensity though as it does move out of our region. Uh, So Cocos Island isn't a... In the sort of direct line of the the system, um, but from a sort of impacts perspective, it has had some fresh northerly winds, um, some rainfall as well, and that's gradually going to ease as the system moves away. Uh, and one of the other impacts, I guess, is just a nor- northwesterly swell uh, potentially could get into the lagoon area um, with the from the cyclone. Okay. How are things looking across the rest of the north, including the sort of, uh, as well as the eastern and interior parts uh, over the next couple of days? Yeah, so away from the Kimberley. Uh, so the nor- northeastern parts of the interior potentially could get some of those um, heavy falls as well. The the main falls from the system um, and the low and the monsoon are going to be the northern parts and eastern parts of the Kimberley. But further south, uh, we could see some enhancement in the uh, thunderstorms as well. So some potentially still some good falls through uh, northeastern parts of the interior and then most of the thunderstorms um, will be on the trough uh, coming into uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and into the weekend as well. So that includes sort of the inland parts of the Pilbara into um, the Gascoyne, uh, into northern parts of the goldfields and sort of uh, extending into the interior as well. And there'll just be sort of slight little shifts on exactly um, how far into the Pilbara or how close it gets to the coast in the Pilbara and how far south they are, just depending on sort of its exact position of the, the trough. It is lovely to see those rains come in. I'm sure everyone will be looking forward to seeing the landscape green up a little bit after 
uh, a long dry season. Uh, moving south, what's um, happening in the southwest land division? My auntie lives in Bustleton and she reckons she got some steamy conditions and some hail late yesterday. What's it looking like in the southwest? Yeah, there were a couple of thunderstorms that popped up yesterday. Uh, so for the southern part of the state and uh, the southwest land division, we're, it's mostly dominated by a high or a ridge that's uh, sitting to the south of the state and the trough that's down the west coast. So the high has been pushing uh, generally sort of east and northeasterly winds over uh, the southwest land division. And we have, because they're coming sort of from the land, we're also starting to see an increase in temperatures as well. So at the moment, it's more down the west coast. But over the next next couple of days we'll see uh, those increase in temperatures around sort of four to six degrees above average um, for the, this time of the year. We'll see them starting to sort of uh, go further into the southwest land division, particularly the southern parts, um, and then that will sort of continue into the weekend as well. Generally uh, today uh, down the trough uh, there's still uh, the chance of thunderstorms through the central west district, northeastern, sorry, northwestern parts of the central uh, wheat belt. And then there's also the chance of thunderstorms a little bit further south uh, on the trough line as well. So that's inland parts of the southwest district into the Great Southern, adjacent parts of the southern central wheat belt and sort of inland just from the west coast, uh, the south coast there. So um, inland from Albany and those Esperance areas there. So that's today. Coming into Wednesday, the thunderstorms are going to be confined to the central west district just on the trough there and it'll clear through uh, the remainder of the southwest land division. We might just see the odd shower along the um, east of Esperance along the coast there in the onshore airstream. Coming into Thursday, clear for the southwest land division, those warm temperatures as I mentioned and then just the odd shower along the south coast east of Albany. Uh, very light falls though, just in the onshore flow. Um, generally clear for Friday as well. The thunderstorms are just going to creep into the southwest land division north of Geraldton and then coming into uh, Saturday, once again, it's going to be generally clear for the southwest land division. Uh, temperatures are going to be warm, warming. Um, and then the trough in the so southern parts does move inland a little bit on Saturday. So the, the far southwest corner might see a little bit cooler temperatures than what it's had during the week and a possible very late shower along sort of uh, the near Augusta and uh, Warpole area. Uh, there's a weak front that's going to scrape the coast early on Christmas morning. Okay, not good news, those thunderstorms in the uh, inland parts of the southwest land division. If you're out on the harvest or trying to get finished in time for Christmas, fingers crossed if you're in that part of the world. Now, Carolyn, are there any warnings in place this afternoon? Yeah, what I might just add with those thunderstorms that you just mentioned as well for um, today in the south, there could be uh, quite dry thunderstorms, a little not much rainfall out of it. Um, so, yeah, not too much rainfall out of those ones. The ones further north, though, potentially we will see um, the, the drop of rain uh, from those ones there. From a warnings perspective, we've currently... Uh, got um, marine uh, coastal wind warnings for the uh, southwest corner. So that's around the Bunbury Geograph coast and also the Lewin coast and a similar location tomorrow. And as we discussed, there's that severe TC Darien well off the um, northwest coast there out uh, west of Cocos Island. Hey, thank you so much for that update, Carolyn. Appreciate your time. No worries, Jess. You have a good day. You too. Judy forecaster Carolyn Crow. Now with all the latest rainfire, uh, rainfall and bushfire information, the man himself, Richard Hudson, joins me. Much moisture around. I'll actually start with the 
I'll let you start with the bushfire information side of things because a watch and act, uh, sorry, a bushfire advice has just been issued. So this is by the Parks and Wildlife Service at the Department of Biodiversity, Conservation and Attractions. And this is in the southwest, so in the Shire of Donnybrook, bailing up. So bushfire advice is now in place for people travelling along Donnybrook, Boyup Brook Road and Collie Preston Road and in the vicinity of Glen Mervyn Dam in the parts of Mumbleup in the Shire of Donnybrook, bailing up. So the normal situation with the bushfire advice, lots of smoke in the area, no immediate danger, but you do need to be aware that things could change. Um, there are some other fires around in Western Australia at the moment. There's uh, bushfire advice for part of Mount Hardman in the Shire of Derby, West Kimberley. There's an advice for parts of Cervantes still. So this is Cervantes, Durian Bay and Nambung in the Shire of Dandarigan. Bushfire advice for parts of Henderson and uh, Wattle Up in the city of Quinana, close to Perth. And advice for parts of Pinjarra, Ravenswood, West Pinjarra in the Shire of Murray. And there's also a bushfire advice for northeastern part of Trent in the Shire of Denmark. And again, if you want more information on those, because it is an, at an advice level, uh, just go to Emergency WA. Just search Emergency WA. You'll find the right website. And of course, you can follow DFES, D-F-E-S, on Twitter and Facebook. They'll put their most uh, recent alerts on both of those forms of social media. And of course, the old-fashioned way, keep tuning into ABC Local Radio on... Uh, the ABC, yeah. Uh, the, That's the way the, to do it? The wireless. The wireless. <laughs> as far as the rainfall goes, not heaps to get through. In the northern and eastern forecast districts, in the Kimberley, Flora Valley 15, Columbaroo 11, Kingston Rest topped it with 26, Kununurra at the airport 15, Mount Amherst 6, Troughton Island 14 and Truscott 24. Nothing in the Pilbara. In the Gascoigne there was a bit though. Fantastic. Dairy Creek 12, Dalgetty Downs 8, Mingar Springs 11, Mount Clare 14, Ned's Creek 14 as well, Mount Naria 15, Tangadee 7, Three Rivers 10, a tiny bit at, uh, in the interior, Lorna Glen got three mills, nothing in the goldfields or in the Eucla or out on the islands. And then in the southwest and division forecast districts, only a tiny bit around, but the few storms around in the central west. Aradale, six mils. Binu, five. And Una had between 14 and 15 mils across a number of locations. And then in the southwest, yeah, it just looks like there was a bit of a downpour, downpour, downpour at uh, Bustleton and the Shire. Uh, 12 mils, and that's it. Fantastic. Thank you. Now, Richard, you've struck a bit of a nerve when you spoke to Dr. Graham Gardner earlier. He reckons that methane emissions from livestock, not as big a part of the problem as carbon dioxide from fossil fuels. The text line this afternoon is running hot. Uh, This text has come in from Rob, who says, Jess, good news for livestock from Dr. Gardner. Now, we just need to wind back Alana McTiernan's idea of regenerative farming as the forced option for grain farmers. And Rob says we could only end up like Dutch farmers if she remained as the WA Ag Minister. That text in from Rob. Carol says, good afternoon. At last, someone making sense. Thank you, Dr. Gardner. Uh, And Brett says, how many feral camels, goats, pigs, horses and rabbits are in Australia, all producing methane and destroying habitat? That text from Brett You too can have your say uh, just on this topic about uh, the role of red meat and what it does in society or anything. If you'd like to be part of the conversation, send me a text. The number is 0448 
922604. 17 minutes to one on ABC Radio. Now, as Foreign Minister Penny Wong travels to China this week, Australia's peak wine body is pretty hopeful that Australia's trade relationship with the country may well be on the mend. It's the first visit by an Australian minister since 2019, after tensions rose between the Morrison government and Beijing over the origins of the COVID pandemic. Now, Minister Wong is set to hold talks with her Chinese counterpart Wang Yi during the trip. And in late 2020, China imposed so-called anti-dumping tariffs of up to 218% on Australian wine, killing a market worth about a billion dollars a year. Australian grape and wine CEO Lee McLean says the body is cautiously optimistic about what the fresh diplomatic dialogue might mean for the trade. Well, it's been a, a really massive couple of years for Australian grape growers and winemakers and, and not a particularly good couple of years, to be honest. China, a couple of years back now, uh, imposed import duties on Australian wines, Australian bottled wines, of up to 218%, which effectively shut down what was what what was once a, a $1.2 billion market for us. And to put that in perspective, China was number one by value in terms of our export markets and numbers two and three with the US and the UK. And they sat at just under 500 million each. So it was really an enormous shock to the Australian wine industry. And we're still feeling the repercussions of, of that shock. And for many growers out there, we're really just at the beginning of the, the period of pain in terms of the oversupply situation that has ensued. Now that the Foreign Minister Penny Wong is travelling over to China, obviously there has finally been some communication between the Australian government and the Chinese government. Does this give you a little bit of hope that some of these trade sanctions may be removed or reduced? Well, look, it does. I think we're cautiously optimistic about it. And, you know, in, in the most basic of terms, I don't think we can solve any problems if we're not talking. So dialogue is terrific. It's great that we're having... Uh, meetings at the ministerial level, at the prime minister's level as well. And we hope that that certainly leads to a, a situation in which our relationship can be become normal again. We know that there was that period of sort of deep freeze uh, at the political and officials level for a long time. And that made it very difficult for us to make any progress on some of the trade issues that we were facing. So we, we certainly hope that that dialogue can continue and that we can see a normalisation of relations in the future, because that's going to open up opportunities for us to talk about how we might be able to work through some of these trade tensions. Even if these trade tensions are resolved or eased and there is a better trade relationship between Australia and China, do you think that some exporters would be once bitten, twice shy and maybe not as keen to get back into the China market? Yeah, look, I, I think there's really strong demands for Australian wine in China still. That's that's what we hear from our members uh, they hear that from their customers. So I think if the market reopens again, we will see Australian exporters heading into China. But there's no doubt that for a lot of businesses out there, you know, their risk profile about doing business in China will be very different than it was five years ago. So uh, I wouldn't expect that we would see that return to a $1.2 billion export industry in the short to medium term. But certainly there will be a number of businesses out there that will be looking to export to wines to China in the, in the near term. And what about diversification? Over the past two years, trying to work through whether or not we'd even get the China market back, how well has diversification actually been achieved for Australian exporters? 
Yeah, it's a really good question. So essentially, we've put a huge amount of effort into trying to diversify markets, but it hasn't been as easy for the Australian wine sector as it probably has been for some other areas of the uh, the Australian agriculture sector. We have had some growth in areas like Southeast Asia, some growth at the high end in the US as well. But in terms of being able to sort of work through that that massive shock that we experienced as a result of the closure of the China market. There is really no single market or no collection of markets that could have replaced what we lost in China. So it is much more of a slow burn for us, but there are some bright spots, Japan and Korea as well, uh, Southeast Asia, the US, and in the long-term India all look promising. And we'll, you know, the critical thing for us is that we can continue that export diversification effort, regardless of whether China opens up to us again or not. Australian Grape and Wine CEO Lee McLean speaking with Jane McNaughton, 12 to 1. So the big question is, is the trade likely to resume anytime soon for those commodities which have been caught up in this diplomatic spat? Richard McGregor is Senior Fellow at the Lowy Institute, which is an Australian foreign policy think tank. Richard, a lot of the media is really touting this meeting between Foreign Minister Penny Wong and her Chinese counterpart as historic and a massive step forward in repairing the country's diplomatic relationships. Would you say that this is an exaggeration? It's only overblown in the sense that if people expect you know, relations with China to go back to normal or go back to, not to normal so much as, what, as to what it was uh, about five, ten years ago, that's not going to happen. It's a positive thing, but uh, you know nobody's kissing and making up and forgetting what's happened in recent years. Right. So there's a sense of caution in these discussions. Yes, I think there's absolutely people should be cautious about it. I think the Australian government is quite cautious about it. You can see by the way they speak about the relationship. They don't try and uh, pretend uh, it's something that it's not. But nonetheless, if you consider where we were at the end of the Morrison government and now where we are only five, six months later towards the end of the year, then things have changed. The atmospherics are better. We've not only had ministerial-level contacts, we've had a leader-to-leader meeting and we've had multiple contacts at the ministerial level. So I think things have changed, but you know, there's not going to be immediate you know, political and commercial benefits from that. Okay. The impact on certain export commodities is well documented. But looking back, can you just recap for me exactly what the nature of those restrictions were and what the, the impact has been? Well, I think China targeted about $20 billion worth of Australian exports to China. And, you know, like barley, uh, wine, lobster, meat, for example. And in some sectors, that it had a substantial impact. Wine in particular, which went from about a billion dollars plus to zero. And in the case of barley, which are valuable markets, which were shut off and Australian barley had to be sold elsewhere at a lower price. So, yes, it, it's definitely had a, an impact. But in the larger scheme of things, in terms of value of two-way trade, it did not have a huge impact because... Resources like iron ore, uh, like LNG, like wool, Australia is either the dominant or large supplier of those commodities. China can't get them elsewhere or couldn't get them elsewhere in the short term. So that's really just continued. So the trade relationship overall is still very healthy, but in some sectors have been badly hurt. Earlier you mentioned that the change and the commercial benefits may not or likely won't flow overnight. 
if I was a barley grower and I'm planning my um, seeding program for next year, would it be wise to be planning for within the next 12 months around increasing barley plantings in the hopes of, of this diplomatic effort renewing the market? Or is this a longer term story? Look, the last thing I would ever do is give advice to farmers or uh, barley farmers, but but I'll, I'll give you my sense of the politics of it. I think the first thing which will determine this is Chinese demand. If they can't get it from uh, elsewhere and Australia is the only supplier, then they're happy to do that. And there's a very good example of that at the moment in Western Australia with wheat. Australia is supplying record amounts of wheat to China at the moment, and that's partly because of Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine was a big exporter, and obviously that's been disrupted, and it's partly because WA has had excellent crops recently. So China is still sanctioning Australia at the moment, but when they need the wheat, they'll buy it because China won't self-harm. So I think that's the most important point is demand. Secondly, if you're a barley farmer, do you really want to rush back into the China market, even if there's a premium there? because there could be further political problems down the track and trade could be disrupted again. And the same goes for Chinese buyers as well. Do they want to you know, re-cement quickly what had been a long-term relationship and the knowledge that their government could pull the rug from under them at any moment? Now, so in short, you know, if the demand is there, the Chinese will buy it or try to buy it, uh, but the geopolitical risks uh, remain. It's hard to talk about. Australian-Chinese relations without focusing on iron ore, which is our biggest export, and it's a key cornerstone of our commercial and trade interests. How do you anticipate that this renewed diplomatic activity might impact that market? Well, I think the lesson of the last few years is the diplomatic relationship has had very little to do with it. Chinese steel mills needed our iron ore. They couldn't secure it from elsewhere. Brazil had a problem with COVID and mining safety and accidents. And so Australia has become just is as, sorry, China is just as or even more so reliant on iron ore than ever. Now, there's a couple of factors going into, you know, the next 12 months. Now, obviously, I would never try and predict prices or volumes, but what are those factors I'm talking about? The first is a return to growth of the Chinese economy if they get out of this, you know, sort of pit of COVID zero that they're in at the moment. But certainly the Chinese government is focused on a return to growth and stimulus, and some of that would flow through to construction and obviously iron ore. Secondly, uh, how much does Brazil pick up? Because Brazil is back in the market these days. And thirdly, I think the most interesting and most sensitive issue is that China has uh, now set up a state company in which it wants to act as a kind of central buying authority for iron ore. In other words, this is kind of what the Japanese used to do in the 90s when they were the dominant buyer. And China obviously wants to use that to control prices, not just stop them going up dramatically, but to also uh, push them down to a degree. Now, nobody knows whether that will work in practice or whether it can work, whether it's compatible with the World Trade Organization. But I think that's the most interesting new factor in the next 12 months. So essentially a single desk at the buying end out of China when it comes to iron ore. It is a single desk up to a point, I guess. We're still waiting to see how it unfolds. But I think the Chinese government so far strong-armed, you know, the big 
Chinese steel mills to try and attempt to force them to buy in this fashion. But China has many other hundreds of smaller steel mills buying as well. So it's no easy thing to, you know, Japan, by contrast, has had a few big, relatively speaking, you know, just a, a handful of big steel mills, and the Japanese system could manage that. China is far bigger, far greater demand, far more steel mills, and has proved more difficult to organise, but the Chinese government seems determined to have a go. Okay. So ultimately, these meetings uh, between the Australian and Chinese government are notable, but we're not going to see changes overnight when it comes to trade. I don't think so. You know, I think it takes time to restore trust. You have to rebuild political dialogue, I think, before uh, the trade issues are solved. Of course, we're likely to get a decision, I think, you know, in the first half of next year on the Bali case, which has been in the WTO. So that might trigger basically an effort to, you know, fix at least that commodity. I think there's a wine case before WTO as well. And of course, China has taken Australia there for some of the duties we've imposed on their imports into Australia as well. So I think there's a lot of water under the bridge yet to go on trade. Richard McGregor, thank you. He is a senior fellow with the Lowy Institute. Now, if, if you're interested in this story, stick around because you'll hear more about those diplomatic meetings uh, on the world today after the news at one. Now, it was the final Mushe sheep sale for this year today, a relatively small one to finish with, about half the size of last week's sale. The final tally was 4,593 and about half of those were lambs. And Terry Birkin's been at the sale all morning. Hi Jess, yes, the last sale before Christmas is usually lighter, even though it's a full week this year at the abattoirs, there's still the break over the new year, so weight was in short supply in trade lambs and heavy mutton today, and it was mostly store sheep with some very light lambs to return to the paddocks. Recent interest in Dorper ewes from restocker buyers dropped off a little this week, however process buyers were all in attendance, plus a few extra restockers chasing lambs were active as well. Lighter lambs and heavier mutton were down 5 to $6, although lighter quality, especially in the lambs, determined that result. So very light stall lambs were making from $10 to $60. Light lambs were selling from $65 to $115. Trade lambs returned $90 to $151 and heavy lambs up to $152. Not a lot of difference in those last two categories for the last sale. Lightweight ram lambs were selling from $10 to $59, while heavier ram lambs sold up to $120 a head. Merino weather hoggets were making $30 to $110, while Merino ewe hoggets started at $35 up to $130 with 40 millimetres of wool. Crossbred hoggets realised $102, and younger rams were selling up to $100 a head. Bony ewes made $20 to $55, medium ewes were selling up to $85, and heavy ewes returned up to $101 a head. Older weathers sold from $65 to $115, and mature rams ranged from $20 to $80 a head. This has been Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. And I hope that you do have a nice break over Christmas, Terry. And the first Mouche sheep sale for 2023 will be on Tuesday, January the 10th. And the first Mouche cattle sale will be on Monday, January the 9th. A few more texts coming in after that earlier discussion with Dr Graham Gardner about methane. He reckons the emissions from livestock, not as big a problem as carbon carbon dioxide from fossil fuels. This text is coming from Michael, who says, loving the discussion, giving me lots to think about. As a farmer, I run 10,000 ewes at Ongarup and never thought of the effect they could have. I think that might be a 
tongue-in-cheek. Uh, and uh, Dongra, Hugh from Dongra, reckons that um, he finds it ironic that they blame animals for a lot of global warming. Well, that's it from me for today. Thanks for your texts. You're off to the news now. It's one o'clock.